Chapter Fourteen of Peter Simple. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Sylvia M. B. in Washington State. Peter Simple by Frederick Marriott. Chapter Fourteen. The first lieutenant has more patience. Mr. Trucks, the boatswain, lets me into the secret of his gentility. Before I proceed with my narrative, I wish to explain to the reader that my history was not written in afterlife, when I had obtained a greater knowledge of the world. When I first went to sea, I promised my mother that I would keep a journal of what had passed, with my reflections upon it. To this promise I rigidly adhered, and since I have been my own master, these journals have remained in my possession. In writing, therefore, the early part of my adventures, everything is stated as it was impressed upon my mind at the time. We had now been cruising for six weeks and I found that my profession was much more agreeable than I had anticipated. My desire to please was taken for the deed, and although I occasionally made a blunder, yet the captain and first lieutenant seemed to think that I was attentive to my duty to the best of my ability, and only smiled at my mistakes. The first lieutenant was one of the most amusing men I ever knew, yet he never relaxed from the discipline of the service, or took the least liberty with either his superiors or inferiors. His humor was principally shown in his various modes of punishment, and however severe the punishment was to the party the manner of inflicting it was invariably a source of amusement to the remainder of the ship's company i often thought that although no individual liked being punished yet that all the ship's company were quite pleased when a punishment took place he was very particular about his decks they were always as white as snow and nothing displeased him so much as their being soiled it was for that reason that he had such an objection to the use of tobacco there were spitting-pans placed in different parts of the decks for the use of the men that they might not dirty the planks with the tobacco juice sometimes a man in a hurry forgot to use these pans but as the mess to which the stain might be opposite had their grog stopped if the party were not found out they took good care not only to keep a lookout but to inform against the offender now the punishment for the offence was as follows the man's hands were tied behind his back and a large tin spitting-box fixed to his chest by a strap over the shoulders all the other boxes on the lower deck were taken away and he was obliged to walk there ready to attend the summons of any man who might wish to empty his mouth of the tobacco juice the other men were so pleased at the fancy that they spat twice as much as before for the pleasure of making him run about i was much amused one morning watch that i kept we were stowing the hammocks in the quarter-deck nettings when one of the boys came up with his hammock on his shoulder and as he passed the first lieutenant the latter perceived that he had a quid of tobacco in his cheek. "'What have you got there, my good lad? A gum boil? Your cheek is very much swelled.' "'No, sir,' replied the boy. "'There's nothing at all the matter.' "'Oh, there must be. It's a bad tooth, then. Open your mouth and let me see.' Very reluctantly the boy opened his mouth and discovered a large roll of tobacco leaf. "'I see, I see,' said the first lieutenant. "'Your mouth wants overhauling, and your teeth cleaning.' i wish we had a dentist on board but as we have not i will operate as well as i can send the armorer up here with his tongs when the armorer made his appearance the boy was made to open his mouth while the chaw of tobacco was extracted with his rough instrument there now said the first lieutenant i am sure that you must feel better already you never could have had any appetite now captain of the afterguard bring a piece of old canvas and some sand here and clean his teeth nicely the captain of the afterguard came forward 
and putting the boy's head between his knees scrubbed his teeth well with the sand and canvas for two or three minutes there that will do said the first lieutenant now my little fellow your mouth is nice and clean and you'll enjoy your breakfast it was impossible for you to have eaten anything with your mouth in such a nasty state when it's dirty again come to me and i'll be your dentist one day i was on the forecastle with mr chucks the boatswain who was very kind to me he had been showing me how to make the various knots and bends of rope which are used in our service i am afraid that i was very stupid but he showed me over and over again until i learnt how to make them amongst others he taught me a fisherman's bend which he pronounced to be the king of all knots and mr Sample, continued he there's a moral in that knot you observe that when the parts are drawn the right way and together the more you pull the faster they hold and the more impossible to untie them but see by hauling them apart how a little difference they pull the other way immediately disunites them and then how easy they cast off in a moment that points out the necessity of pulling together in this world mr simple when we wish to hold on and that's a piece of philosophy worth all the twenty-six thousand and odd years of my friend the carpenter which leads to nothing but a brown study when he ought to be attended to his duty very true mr chucks you are the better philosopher of the two i am better educated mr simple and i trust more of a gentleman i consider a gentleman to be to a certain degree a philosopher for very often he is obliged to support his character as such to put up with what another person may very properly fly in a passion about i think coolness is the great characteristic of a gentleman in the service mr simple one is obliged to appear angry without indulging sentiment i can assure you that i never lose my temper even when i use my rattan why then mr chucks do you swear so much at the men surely that is not gentlemanly most certainly not sir but i must defend myself by observing the very artificial state in which we live on board of a man-of-war nothing would afford me more pleasure than to be able to carry on the duty as a gentleman but that's impossible i really cannot see why perhaps then mr simple you will explain to me why the captain and first lieutenant swear that i do not pretend to answer but they only do so upon an emergency exactly so but sir their emergency is my daily and hourly duty in the continual working of the ship i am answerable for all that goes amiss the life of a boatswain is the life of emergency therefore i swear i still cannot allow it to be requisite and certainly it is sinful excuse me my dear sir it is absolutely requisite and not at all sinful there is one language for the pulpit and another for on board ship and in either situation a man must make use of those terms most likely to produce the necessary effect upon his listeners certainly it is that common parlancy won't do with a common seaman it is not here as in the scriptures do this and he doeth it by the by that chap must have had his soldiers in tight order but it is do this damn your eyes and then it is done directly the order to do just carries the weight of a cannon shot but it wants the propelling power the dam is the gunpowder which sets it flying in the execution of its duty do you comprehend me mr simple i perfectly understand you mr chucks and i cannot help remarking and that without flattery that you are very different from the rest of the warrant officers where did you receive your education mr simple i am here a boatswain with a clean shirt and i say it myself and no one dare gainsay it also with a thorough knowledge of my duty but although i do not say that i ever was better off i can say this 
that I've been in the best society, in the company of lords and ladies. I once dined with your grandfather. That's more than I ever did, for he never asked me, nor took the least notice of me, replied I. What I state is true. I did not know that he was your grandfather until yesterday, when I was talking with Mr. O'Brien. But I perfectly recollect him, although I was very young at that time. Now, Mr. Simple, if you will promise me as a gentleman, and I know you are one, that you will not repeat what I tell you, then I'll let you into the history of my life. Mr. Chucks, as I am a gentleman, I never will divulge it until you are dead and buried, and not then, if you do not wish it. Mr. Chucks then sat down upon the fore end of the booms by the funnel, and I took my place by his side, when he commenced as follows. My father was a boatswain before me, one of the old school, rough as a bear and drunken as a gosport fiddler. My mother was my mother, and I shall say no more. My father was invalided for harbour duty after a life of intoxication, and died shortly afterwards. In the meantime, I had been, by the kindness of the Port Admiral's wife, educated at a foundation school. I was thirteen when my father died, and my mother, not knowing what to do with me, wished to bind me apprentice to a merchant vessel. But this I refused, and after six months quarrelling on the subject, I decided the point by volunteering in the Narcissus frigate. I believe that my gentlemanly ideas were innate, Mr. Simple. I never as a child could bear the idea of the merchant service. After I had been a week on board, I was appointed servant to the purser, where I gave such satisfaction by my alertness and dexterity that the first lieutenant took me away from the purser to attend upon himself. It so happened that after I had served the first lieutenant for about a year, a young lord, I must not mention his name, Mr. Simple, was sent to sea by his friends, or by his own choice, I don't know which, but I was told that his uncle, who was executive and had an interest in his death, persuaded him to go. A lord at that period, some twenty-five years ago, was a rarity in the service, and they used to salute him when he came on board. The consequence was that the young lord must have a servant to himself, although all the rest of the midshipmen had but one servant between them. The captain inquired who was the best boy in the ship, and the purser, to whom he appealed, recommended me. Accordingly, I was immediately surrendered to his lordship. I had a very easy, comfortable life of it. I did little or nothing. We went to the Mediterranean, because his lordship's mamma wished it, and we had been there about a year, when his lordship ate so many grapes that he was seized with a dysentery. He was ill for three weeks, and then he requested to be sent to Malta in a transport going to Gibraltar, or rather to the Barbary coast for bullocks. He became worse every day, and made his will, leaving me all his effects on board, which I certainly deserved for the kindness with which I had nursed him. Off Malta we fell in with a Zebek, bound to Civita Vecchia, and the captain with the transport, anxious to proceed, advised our going on board of her, as the wind was light and contrary, and these Mediterranean vessels sailed better on a wind than the transport. My master, who was now sinking fast, consented, and we changed our ships. The next day he died, and a gale of wind came on, which prevented us from gaining the port for several days, and the body of his lordship not only became so offensive, but affected the superstition of the Catholic sailor so much that it was hove overboard. The wind was still against us, when a merchant vessel ran down to us, that had left Civita Vecchia for Gibraltar. I desired the captain of the Zebec to make a signal of distress, or rather I did myself, and the vessel, which proved to be English, bore down on us. I manned the boat to go on board, and the idea came into my head 
that although they might refuse to take me that they would not refuse a lord i put on the midshipman's uniform belonging to his lordship but then certainly belonging to me and went alongside of the merchant vessel i told them that i had left my ship for the benefit of my health and wanted a passage to gibraltar on my way home my title and immediate acceptance of the terms demanded for my passage was sufficient my property was brought from the zebec and of course as they could not speak english they could not contradict even if they suspected during my passage to gibraltar i had plenty of time for arranging my plans i hardly need say that my lord's kit was valuable and what was better they exactly fitted me i also had his watches and trinkets and many other things besides a bag of dollars however they were honestly mine the only thing that i took was his name which he had no further occasion for poor fellow but it's no use defending what was wrong it was dishonest and there's an end of it now observe mr simple how one thing leads to another i declare to you that my first idea of making use of his lordship's name was to procure a passage to gibraltar i then was undecided how to act but as i had charge of his papers and letters to his mother and guardian i think indeed i am almost sure that i should have laid aside my dignity and midshipman's dress and applied for a passage home to the commissioner of the yard but it was fated to be otherwise for the master of the transport went on shore to report and obtain pratique and he told them everywhere that the young lord was a passenger with him going to england for the benefit of his health in less than half an hour off came the commissioner's boat and another boat from the governor requesting the honour of my company and that i would take a bed at their houses during my stay what could i do i began to be frightened but i was more afraid to confess that i was an impostor for i am sure the master of the transport alone would have kicked me overboard if i had let him know that he had been so confounded polite to a ship's boy so i blushed half from modesty and half from guilt and accepted the invitation of the governor sending a polite verbal refusal to the commissioner upon the plea of there being no paper or pens on board well mr simple i dressed myself very carefully put on my chains and rings and a little perfume on my handkerchief and accompanied the aide-de-camp to the governor's where i was asked after my mother lady and my uncle my guardian and a hundred other questions at first i was much confused which was attributed to bashfulness and so it was but not of the right sort but before the day was over i had been so accustomed to be called my lord and to my situation that i was quite at my ease and began to watch the motions and behaviour of the company that i might regulate my comportment by that of good society i remained at gibraltar for a fortnight and then was offered a passage in a transport ordered to portsmouth being an officer of course it was free to a certain extent on my passage to england i again made up my mind that i would put off my dress and title as soon as i could escape from observation but i was prevented as before the port admiral sent off to request the pleasure of my company to dinner i dared not refuse and there i was my lord as before courted and feasted by everybody my bill at the hotel was very extravagant and more than i could pay but the master said it was not of the least consequence that of course his lordship had not provided himself with cash just coming from foreign parts and offered to supply me with money if i required it this i will say i was honest enough to refuse i left my cards p p c as they do mr simple in all well-regulated society and set off in the mail for london where i fully resolved to drop my title and to proceed to scotland to his lordship's mother with the mournful intelligence of his death for you see mr simple no one knew that his lordship was dead 
when i arrived in london i still wore my midshipman's uniform i went to a hotel recommended to me as i afterwards found out the most fashionable in town and my title still following me i now determined to put off my uniform and dress in plain clothes my farce was over i went to bed that night and the next morning made my appearance in a suit of mufti making inquiry of the waiter which was the best conveyance to scotland post ye in four my lord and what time shall i order it oh replied i i am not sure that i shall go to-morrow just at this moment in came the master of the hotel with the morning post in his hand making me a low bow and pointing to the insertion of my arrival at his hotel among the fashionables this annoyed me and now that i found how difficult it was to get rid of my title i became particularly anxious to be william chucks as before before twelve o'clock three or four gentlemen were ushered into my sitting-room who observing my arrival in that damned morning post came to pay their respects and before the day was over i was invited and re-invited by a dozen people at last the play was over i had been enticed by some young men into a gambling-house where they intended to fleece me but for the first night they allowed me to win i think about three hundred pounds i was quite delighted with my success and had agreed to meet them the next evening but when i was at breakfast with my legs crossed reading the morning post who should come to see me but my guardian uncle he knew his nephew's features too well to be deceived and my not recognizing him proved at once that i was an impostor you must allow me to hasten over the scene which took place the wrath of the uncle the confusion in the hotel the abuse of the waiters the police officer and being dragged into a hackney coach to bow street there i was examined and confessed all the uncle was so glad to find that his nephew was really dead that he felt no resentment toward me and as after all i had only assumed a name but had cheated nobody except the landlord at portsmouth i was sent on board the tender off the tower to be drafted into a man-of-war as for my three hundred pounds my clothes etc i never heard any more of them they were seized i presume by the landlord of the hotel for my bill and very handsomely he must have paid himself you found some difference i should think in your situation yes i did mr simple but i was much happier i could not forget the ladies and the dinners and the opera and all the delights of london beside the respect paid to my title and i often sighed for them but the police officer in bow street also came to my recollection and i shuddered at the remembrance it had however one good effect i determined to be an officer if i could and learnt my duty and worked my way up to quartermaster and thence to boatswain and i know my duty mr simple but i've been punished for my folly ever since i formed ideas above my station in life and cannot help longing to be a gentleman it's a bad thing for a man to have ideas above his station you certainly must find some difference between the company in london and that of the warrant officers it's many years back now sir but i can't get over the feeling i can't associate with them at all End of chapter fourteen